Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 20. Actually, verses uh, 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that when he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the reading of God's Word. Um, I begin with the disclaimer. Usually, I think many of you who are regulars here at Redeemer know this about us and our gathering and our time and our preaching, is that... Uh, I usually attempt to stay very focused to a text. Um, I don't, by that I mean, we, we go and we open up the scriptures, we read the scriptures, we hear what God has to say, and I usually avoid kind of tackling contemporary issues, right? Um, that's not a, a, a habit or a practice that I make in, in uh, sermons. I want the text to dictate where we're going to go. My primary task 
as a shepherd of the flock of God is to preach the word, to feed the flock from the word of God, from God's word. And God's word is sufficient to address the, the needs, you know, the issues or things that are going on uh, in the day. But, but from time to time, um, I'm reminded, God's people need to hear God's word to the needs of the moment. All right? God's, need, God's people need to hear the word for a particular need in the moment. And I preach and teach the scriptures so that we will be grounded in Christ, so that we will be grounded in his word, so that our roots are pushed down and we grow up in a knowledge and grace about who Jesus Christ is. But we also preach and teach the scriptures so that we will have all of us, all of us will be formed and shaped in a biblically based, Christ-centered um, gospel-oriented worldview. Okay? When we gather together and we're instructing from God's word, we're, we need to be shaped by God's word and our worldview needs to be shaped by his word. So, in the course of human events, it's necessary for us to address things from time to time. And I, I've been tempted to do that in recent weeks. I mean, we could have done this with many, uh, any number of things, like Ferguson, or Baltimore, or Caitlin, or Rachel. We could... There's lots of issues. Issues come up every single week that I can, we can talk about and address and understand that the Bible says things about it. But on this day, I'm compelled to do so with marriage. With marriage. And in particular, the ruling on Friday um, from the Supreme Court that legalized marriage, uh, same-sex marriage, in all 50 states. Is there anybody who wants to raise their hand and say, I don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> okay. Well, let me begin just with a brief explainer, in case you, you didn't want to raise your hand. Um, at issue before the Supreme Court um, was, does the Constitution require redefining the word marriage? Does the Constitution require that? Debate was held back in April, and the ruling came down uh, on Friday, June 26th. The decision was a 5-4 majority that says, yes, it does require the redefinition of marriage to include two people, regardless of whether they're male or female, regardless of biological sex. And as a result, same-sex marriage is now legalized in all 50 states. On Thursday, it was 37 states. Um, two years ago, in May of 20. 13, I did a short two-week series on same-sex marriage. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality and same-sex marriage? And, um, and when I announced that series, there were nine states. But by the time I started the series, there were ten. And by the time we finished their series, there was eleven. Then it was thirty-seven, and now it's all fifty. And so there's been a, a revolution that's taking place, and a momentum has been gained in recent years, and a major advance kind of took place on Friday, and I don't believe that's really going to be the end. There's going to be uh, more. Uh, it's not going to stop there. And I, we could kind of take a hint from this, even from uh, the response, the, the dissent from the other judges as well. Uh, Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion on this, he said that marriage should be between two people regardless of biological sex. But Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissent, kind of brought up 
this is not a slippery slope issue. He, he said this, although the majority randomly inserts the adjective to in various places, it offers no reason at all why the two-person element of the core definition of marriage may be preserved while the man-woman element may be not. Indeed, from the standpoint of history and tradition, a leap from opposite-sex marriage to same-sex marriage is a greater one, a greater leap, than one from a two-person unions to a plural unions, which have deep roots in some cultures around the world. If the majority is willing to take the big step, it is hard to see how it could say no to the shorter one. He, he concludes, and I, I had those on there as well, too. Um, there, there we go. He did conclude, in case you want to read that there, he did conclude by saying the call was for marriage equality. It won't be long until polyamorous claim, the polyamorous claim, polyamorous people who love more than one people, one person, who claim their share in that equality as well. So, I mean, this is not some fringe person on the Internet kind of saying this. This is the chief justice in the dissent itself. So marriage is... The definition of marriage has really taken quite a huge, drastic change in recent years, in recent months, just in a matter of days. And so what are we to do to this? What are we to do? As a church, as Christians, a biblically-oriented worldview, how are we to view this? We could look at it from the Constitution angle. My wife told me to not talk super fast, so, but there's a lot of things I want to talk about. So if I go too fast, just raise your hand and I'll slow down. There's several angles we can look at, right? There's the Constitution angle. What does this mean for the rule of law? Well, in short, the short answer is it's actually really terrible for the rule of law. Um, one uh, expert in the Constitution, a, a Ph.D., said today is a significant setback for all Americans. This is Ryan Anderson, um, who believe in the Constitution, the rule of law, democratic self-government, and marriage as the union of one man and one woman. The Supreme Court got it wrong. Even Chief, Chief Justice, in his dissent, in the last paragraph, said, if you're among the many of Americans of whatever sexual uh, orientation who favor expanding this, uh, expanding same-sex marriage, by all means, celebrate today's decision. He said, celebrate the achievement. Celebrate. He goes on and on. So he celebrated. He goes, but do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. Wow. I mean, those are scathing words. So from... The Constitution angle, I think, um, the decision was terrible. But I'm not a Constitution scholar. And I'm not so much concerned for us primarily about the Constitution. There's another angle. We could take the kind of the religious liberties angle. And I know that's kind of connected to the Constitution, right? The question becomes, how will this sexual liberties and sexual rights uh, and religious rights be balanced. Can they peacefully coexist? And I think that the answer to that is no, they probably can't. Believe that they're on a head-on collision. Religious liberties and sexual liberties are now going to be, uh, are definitely at odds. And I think that they're going to, one of them, they both can't win. One's going to be discarded eventually. And I think we can kind of see which one that may be. This may take some time. But there are some questions that are already being asked, like religious schools and religious institutions. Will they be required to comply with these kinds of things? So, for example, married housing. If a school, a religious school, offers married housing and uh, now a, a same-sex couple wants to have married housing, if the doctrinal convictions of that school 
don't align with that, can they legally say no? That's already kind of an issue that's being brought up. Other questions are, will, will religious institutions or even churches lose their tax-exempt status? Some kind of say no, but others are very saying this is very quite possible, especially for institutions first. Actually, when the case was argued, that question was asked to the Solicitor General, um, will this happen? Will the loss of tax-exempt status, will it apply to a university or college if it opposes same-sex marriage? And the Solicitor General said, you know, I can't really answer that without knowing more specifics. I, I don't deny that. I don't deny that will be an issue, Justice Alito, because that's who asked the question. It's going to be an issue, he said. And I think that if it happens in institutions, I, I think it's quite possible that churches wouldn't be very far behind. Would pastors be fined or imprisoned if they refused to do one? Again, many people flatly deny it, but I, I wouldn't be so sure. So that's the religious liberties angle. We could look at the morality of America angle. So the, some ask the question, is this the death knell for morality in America? Um, and my response to that might be shocking. It, not, my response is no, mostly because America is not an exemplar of morality anyway. Right? You know, the American sinners are sinners just as much as sinners of other countries. And being a democratic republic in no way makes us more honorable people than anybody else. And I, and I kind of think if one thinks that uh, American culture writ large has been a model of moral society, I'd say you quite simply aren't paying attention. So is this, you know, drastically going to affect the morality of America? I would say probably not. No, but again, the Constitution angle, religious liberties, morality of America angle. I'll tell you the one angle I'm most concerned about. The angle that I'm most concerned about is what does this mean for the church? In particular, what does this mean for marriage and for the gospel? And so this morning, I would like for us to kind of flesh that out. And I have five things that I think that we could do about it. But I want to begin by recapping for us all. What is marriage? What is marriage? The Supreme Court says it's just two persons who love each other. Doesn't matter. Biological gender, or biologist, biological sex doesn't matter. But God says that marriage is between one man and one woman. And it was established by God himself in creation. It's connected to the very opening chapters of God's revelation to the world. That, that understanding of marriage was affirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verse uh, 4 through 6, Jesus is asked a question by the religious leaders. They're always trying to trap him and to do those kinds of things. And they ask him this kind of tricky question regarding, um, regarding divorce. And Jesus is like, well, wait a second. I, I want to get back underneath that question. And so he says these words, Matthew chapter, um, Matthew chapter four, uh, 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, meaning made husband and wife male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not read? Now he's talking to the religious leaders. Of course he knows that they've read this. 
So Jesus, they're trying to ask him this question. Jesus goes, let me define for you what marriage is before we handle any of these little details and particulars. And Jesus continues, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in addressing this case of marriage, Jesus was defining, or this question regarding, you know, divorce and if they die, what happens? Jesus says, no, I want to define for you what marriage is and what the proper context for sexual relations should be. One man, one woman in a marriage relationship. Now, some will argue, and I think even some in the Christian church will attempt to argue uh, that Jesus here, Jesus never mentions the issue of homosexuality. Never, never uses the word. And they take from that uh, the implication that Jesus was okay with it. But that's an argument from silence, right? I mean, we could, we could think of other things Jesus didn't talk about. And we would want to be very, very careful to say that Jesus was okay with, right? But first, but it, so that's an argument from silence. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't silent on the issue. He defined what marriage was. And he didn't do it by outlining all the ways in which uh, marriage could be violated or all the ways that sexual immorality could take place. He defined it by what it was and said anything outside of that was wrong. So anything outside of this one man, one woman in a marriage covenant was wrong, whether it be man, man, woman, woman, unmarried man, unmarried woman, man, close relative, man, unclose relative, you go on down the list. I mean, whatever the mind could conceive, a sinful mind can conceive, all of those fall outside of it. Jesus was framing the only acceptable way. So marriage was established by God in creation, and it was affirmed by Jesus Christ, and it's very, very important to God because he created it as a gift for us. He created it for human flourishing of mankind. He created it for the protection and for the sake of children. But more than that, Marriage pictures the union of Jesus Christ and his church. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Whenever I, I do a wedding, I get requests of people want to kind of say some things. I go, well, okay, that's good. But I, I'm going to say this. <laughs> I always include this in every wedding. And then some people are like, well, you're not very creative. And I'm like, well... This is God's word. And marriage is not a human institution that was made, you know, that made by humans. This was made by God himself. And so it says, it says this. This is what I think is so profound. He, he gives instructions. He, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's giving instructions to wives. He gives instructions to husbands. And then he says this. Uh, he's in the context of husbands, love your wives. He says this in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So the example for husbands and how they are to love their wives is Jesus in, it, in relationship to the church. And then verse 30, it says, because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes the same passage that Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul goes on to say this, this mystery, these two people coming together becoming one flesh, that's a mystery. Wow. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's amazing. So marriage means quite a bit to God. He's given us this institution. He grounds it in creation. He grounds it in the very fundamental makeup of men and women. And then he says that actually is the picture of Jesus Christ and his church. Marriages picture the gospel. So God says that marriage itself pictures, if God himself is saying that marriage pictures something so closely identified with the gospel of redemption, then you better be sure he's not going to be tolerate it being tampered with. The writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor by all. Everyone is to honor marriage. So that's what marriage is. And that's the understanding of marriage that's now being uh, upended right now in our culture. So what do we do about it, church? What, what can we do in the face of, of this decision and the momentum and the things that are going on? Well, um, I have five musts. I think five things that, that we must do. We probably could come up with more, but I want to at least explore, explore five of these this morning. And the first must is this one. And you can follow along in your handout. You can write these down as well, too, and write down the scripture passages. The first one is, what do we do now? The first must, we must not panic or fear. We must not panic or fear. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign ruler of all, over all. He's not shocked. He's not caught off guard. He's not going, man, I didn't see that coming in the last couple of years. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, ascended into the heaven, and sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven and ruling and reigning over all things. Amen. So, as Christians who know this and believe this, that should kind of temper any panic or fear that we might have, right? He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by any of this. Now, sometimes I think that if we get, we sense kind of a fearful, uh, get the, the, the emotions of fear or sense panic, it may be kind of a, a cause or red flag for us to try to examine ourselves, Maybe we're placing too much emphasis on one of the angles I talked about earlier. Maybe we're, boy, we're really more concerned about the Constitution side or something like that. Where we might lose sight, we get our, our perspectives out of whack, and we might lose sight that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord and ruler over all. He who's throned in heaven laughs at what the kings of the earth have tried to scheme against him, as we read in Psalm 2. So we all have the temptation to trust in cities of man rather than the city of God. We all have temptations to trust in the kingdoms of this world and not the kingdom of heaven. So we could say this. I should, everybody here should smile. Say with this with a smile on your face. We must not panic or fear. Let me hear you say it. Smile on your face. We must not panic or fear. 
I asked my mom for prayer on Friday. By the way, I was obviously not planning on doing this sermon, and, uh, and so on Friday, I, I, I scrapped everything I was doing. Why do these things keep happening in the news where I got to do a whole week's worth of work and then throw it all away and then start all over on a Friday? Um, so I, I sent a little text to my mom, said, hey, mom, um, little prayer. And I just kind of explained the whole thing. And then this is what she texted back. I got it on the screen. Prayer for me, having to postpone original sermon for Sunday in light of SCOTUS today. She goes, listen to this is my father's world. I think you will feel better. Awesome advice. Thanks, Mom. Okay. And I know exactly what she was getting at. It's one of my favorite hymns. Especially verse 3. This is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King, let the heavens ring. Let the earth be glad. The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. Let the earth be glad. We must not panic or fear. The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. Why should your heart be sad? We, should, we must not panic or fear. Second, we must, not, we must descend from the redefinition of marriage. I love that we could do this. They, the Supreme Court writes an opinion. They get a vote. The majority writes an opinion. And the, uh, the minority can write a dissent. And it was pretty fascinating on Friday. All four justices each wrote their own dissent. Which normally, you know, that's not uncommon, but normally one will write and they'll all kind of join with one of them. And, but each one of them wrote their own dissent. But this was unprecedented. Never happened before. Chief Justice Roberts read his entire 20-some page dissent from the bench. 200 plus years. Never happened before. Well, we can dissent. We can dissent. We don't have to agree with the decision. They have, how they have redefined marriage is wrong. And we can call it wrong. With no malice, no hatred, no, no wringing of our hands, no gnashing of our teeth. We can just say, they got it wrong. They got it wrong big time. And the, SCO, the, the Supreme Court, I keep saying SCOTUS because it's, the acronym. But the Supreme Court of the United States, nine unelected judges, they are not infallible people, individually or collectively. They do not stand in judgment over God's word either. They can be wrong. They've been wrong before. The Supreme Court ruling in Dred Scott versus Sanford was morally wrong. And abolitionists, abolitionists called it morally wrong. And Christians called it morally wrong. 
The Supreme Court ruling 42 years ago in Roe v. Wade was morally, is morally wrong. And Christians, eventually, maybe not at first, but they recognize this. And they now call it what it is. It's morally wrong. So too with this decision, in changing the definition of marriage from the sacred institution created by God himself, in changing that, that's morally wrong. And we can call it morally wrong. We can say exactly what Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts said in his final line, I respectfully dissent. We can too. And I, uh, there is, this last week, there um, was published by dozens, hundreds actually, of um, pastors, evangelical pastors, seminary presidents, seminary professors, put together a, a document called Here We Stand, an Evangelical Declaration on Marriage. I'm very hesitant to jumping in and signing every one of these things that comes down the pike. But when I read this one, I said, that I could get behind. That one I can sign. And so I signed it, and I actually posted it to my blog. If you go to my blog, AaronMears.com, you can go read it. There's a link to where you can go sign it as well, too. And um, I think I was going to read sections from it. If you allow me, let me find it. I lost it. So we're not going to read that. But you could go online. You could read uh, exactly what this is. So we must dissent from the Supreme Court's decision. We could disagree. Number three, um, we must learn how, learn well how to love. Okay? We must learn well how to love. What do we do now? We have to learn how to, well to love. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus is not saying, you know, you should have enemies in your heart. You're going to have people who are against you. And so he's saying, but you know what? You're to love them. And you're to pray for those who persecute you. So that you could be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Paul uh, wrote the same thing in Romans chapter 12. Something very similar. He says, um, Never avenge yourself. You leave that to God. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have to. We must be people who are in a complete posture of love. And overcoming evil with good. Now, I want to be clear on what being loving uh, doesn't mean. It doesn't mean an affirmation. It doesn't mean acceptance. For many in our world today, being loving is all about unconditional affirmation of whatever persons want. We've kind of redefined, before we redefine marriage, we've already redefined love to being, well, you, you can't disagree with me on anything, otherwise you'll be a hateful person. I think it was... Um, uh, I think it was Rick Warren who said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. He says, that's just a lie. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. He says, both are nonsense. And we have to be very winsome in pointing out that that's nonsense. It's not unloving to disagree with someone. 
So we could test that. We could test that very, that kind of uh, new cultural understanding of what love is. Let's run that up against Jesus. It says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the demonstration, God's loving demonstration is Christ dying for sinners. Jesus loved us, but yet when you go back and look and see some of the interactions Jesus had with other people, he called sin, sin. He called people to repentance. He disagreed with some people. So according to the prevailing notion of love, Jesus wouldn't even fit, right? Jesus is a hater, right? Because he disagreed with someone. So we don't have to agree, but we have to work very hard, patiently and kindly to do this. Let's go to the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. The great love chapter, it's in every wedding. Where Paul gives a description of love. He says, love is patient and love is kind. So this is our imperative. This is our call. We are to be loving. We need to be patient and we need to be kind. Not a, that's that's uh, non-negotiable. But look at some other things that we are not permitted to be. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Okay, So this is our charge. Brothers and sisters, Redeemer, we can't be any of those things. By the way, this last week in the aftermath on the social media side, I saw manifest, some of those things manifested amazingly. I saw manifest boasting, manifest arrogance, manifest rudeness, manifest insisting its own way, along with death threats and wishes of terrible diseases upon some of the justices and on media personalities by the by the side that won. We 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 can differentiate ourselves greatly by being loving. Filled with the Holy Spirit loving. We're not going to be any of those things. But notice what love does not do in the next verse. Okay? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love's patience, kind, does not envy, boast, it's not arrogant, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Rejoices in the truth. God is clear elsewhere, in many places as well too, that it's not only the ones who do wrong, who do unrighteous things or who do wicked things, who are guilty, those who would not even do you know, any, any things like that, but applaud or celebrate or rejoice in those same things. He says, it's as if you yourself had has done it. Paul ends his entire um, chapter 1 of Romans um, talking about the, the essence of idolatry in man. And he ends with these words in chapter 1, verse 32. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So don't think that you could not act against God's will, but yet approve of it and think that you're going to be not equally guilty in God's sight. God's word says love, to be loving, unequivocally does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So that's number that's number three. We can we must learn well how to love. 
the difficult road of loving. But I'm going to say this one now. Number four, we must learn well how to be hated. You heard me right. That's not a misprint. We must come to terms with being hated. I think for many of us who've grown up in in church, we've heard many a call to love like Jesus is loved, right? How many of you heard that appeal in sermons in many different places? And we resonate with that, don't we? Who doesn't want to be thought of as a loving person or to be close to loving like Jesus loves, right? Who's heard that? How many of you have heard a sermon calling you to, to the invitation to be hated? But that's exactly what Jesus tells, of, tells his disciples. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a part of a generation and generations after me who love the idea of loving like Jesus, but cringe at the idea of the invitation to be hated like he was. Because he was hated. Jesus was despised and rejected of men. And Jesus said, this is part and parcel with being my disciple as well, too. He says this in Matthew chapter 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Later in Matthew chapter 24, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations on my sake. Jesus connected being hated with blessing in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you, or when they exclude you, or revile you, or spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Being Being hated is just the standard fare for a disciple of Christ. As long as we're hated for the right things. If you're hated for being a jerk, you probably should. <laughs> you know, But we're, don't, we're not going to be hated for being a jerk. We're going to be hated because for Christ's sake. Okay? And so that's the invitation that we're called to do. David French, in an article at the National Review this week, wrote an excellent article pointing out the current tendency in place. And I just I had to read it. So if you would bear with me, it's two slides here. He says this, especially among evangelicals, and this is kind of an indictment against kind of some of the, in the evangelical church that just kind of seem to lack conviction on things. He says, there is a naive belief that if only we were winsome enough, kind enough, and compassionate enough, the culture would welcome us with open arms. But now our love, okay, Expressed in the fullness of a gospel that identifies homosexual conduct as sin, but then provides eternal hope through justification and sanctification. That, that whole message, he says, but our love is hate now. He continues, Christians who've not suffered for their faith often romanticize persecution. They imagine themselves willing to lose their jobs, their liberty, even their lives for standing up for the gospel. Yet, when the moment comes, at least here in the United States, they often find they simply can't abide being called hateful. It creates a desperate panicked response. No, you don't understand. I'm not like those people, the religious right or whoever else. And then he ends with this really indicting and very convicting. Thus, at the end of the day, a church that descends from apostles who withstood beatings finds itself unable to withstand tweetings. It's an awesome line. Social scorn is worse, worse than the lash. I think, I think he's dead on. I think 
I, I thought about this, and I go, I, how many of us would love to go to, to Africa and to live in a hut and to fight off these deadly, especially if you're raised there, but to fight off these deadly serpents and things that are, I mean, to live with all of the dangers, unclean water, diseases, and those kinds of things. But, oh my goodness, to be called hateful on Facebook. Wow. That's just too much to handle. And I thought, man. So friends, this was convicting. Friends, we have to subdue our fear of social scorn. We have to subdue our fear of social scorn and subject ourselves to being hated. The truth of the gospel is too serious for us to be stuck under a tyranny of being well-liked. You will be hated for my name's sake, Jesus said. So what do we do when we're hated? Well, we do what Jesus did. When we are reviled, we do not revile in return. Look at what Peter wrote to the church. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Feeling exactly what the prophecy of Isaiah was. Like a sheep before a shearer, it's silent. He just was silent. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And Peter continues, he himself bore his sins in his body, our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You brought you in. It's the cross that grounds this model for us. Jesus did that. The gospel of the cross shapes our ability, empowers our ability to be hated. So we should not revile in return. We should pray for those who persecute us. Jesus taught that. We read that earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus taught it and Jesus did it. As Jesus was on the cross, Father, as they're chanting and throwing insults and scorn at him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, friends, are you terrified of being not liked? And does that fear dictate what you would say or not say? Boy, I don't want to talk about those things at work, because when they get together and they start talking about those things, I, I just, I don't know what to say. Or, boy, this, I, I can't believe what these friends of mine, I'm so shocked that they would post something like that on Facebook, and I, do, I, do I type something back? I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And, and it's, remaining silent in those situations is understandable. If it is something like you don't know what to say. Like, so you remain silent because you don't know what to say. Is it? So I, my question here for us today is, do you remain silent because you don't know what to say? If that's the case, I'd be glad to help. I like words. And I try to do pithy short, you know, responses and stuff all the time. Um, and to be honest, I would love the outlet because some people have just now avoided me. Online, and so I get, that's my only outlet now. So if you need some help, I would love to help you. I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but no. If you're if you're needing help to think through some of these things in real concrete fashion, I would love to help. Email me anytime, please. 
So if you remain silent, do you do so because you don't know what to say? Well, we can work on that. But if you remain silent because you're fearful of not being liked, then maybe the next push for you and your discipleship is to go, as Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. So why? So are you silent? The writer of Hebrews, and I, I thought of this this week, and I thought it was fantastic. The writer of Hebrews said of Moses, now remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household, in the palace of Pharaoh, with all of the wealth of Egypt, and he had all of that at his disposal, and then he looked out and saw the Israelites who were being mistreated, who were being beaten by the very servants of the ones in whose household he then abided. And it says, the writer of Hebrews, when Moses left the palace to go identify with God's people. He says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Friends, there are many of us whose treasure of, of Egypt is to be liked, to be thought well of by others. But Jesus calls us to a discipleship that that says we, we probably will be hated by others and we need to be hated by others in the right way. And that is because we are hated because we agree with what Jesus says about what is right and we agree with what Jesus says about what is wrong. With hearts full of compassion. So we must come to terms with being hated. By friends, neighbors, co-workers, colleagues, and even family members. That's number four. Number five, we must remember the gospel of Christ. And for this, I ask you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And just kind of look at a little bit of this passage here that we read earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, especially verses 9 through 11. A couple of observations about this passage for us to wrap up and to remember the gospel. Observation number one, there is a kingdom of God. It's mentioned twice. Look, verse 9 and verse 10. The kingdom of God or uh, other synonymous phrases, kingdom of heaven, heaven, the final dwelling place of God with his people, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Isaiah called it the new heavens and the new earth. This is a place where ultimately God uh, has defeated his enemy once and for all. He rules in righteousness and his people rejoice and praise in his victory. Okay? There is the kingdom of God. That's the first observation. The second one is not all get in. The unrighteous do not get in. He says this, verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there was apparently some teaching in that church, even within the church itself, was going around undermining one or both of those truths. He says, do not be deceived. He's talking to a church. He says, don't be deceived. I know some of you may have already been deceived. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what are some of the unrighteous things that would disqualify you from entering the kingdom of heaven? He lists ten things. 
Now, the first one is pertinent to this issue of same-sex marriage. It's actually the third one. It's actually the third and fourth one. In the ESV there, it says, men who practice homosexuality. Now, in, in the Greek, it's actually two terms there. It's uh, not one term. It's Greek, two Greek terms, two Greek nouns. Uh, malakoi and arsenokoitai. Two Greek terms. And I just want to unpack this a little bit. The first one is soft. It means It means soft. It's related to the term soft. And this is referring to the passive partner in same relationships. Okay? Paul is very specific. That's why some of... There's some evangelical teachers who are trying to explain this away and saying it's just not what you're... Don't believe your lying eyes. No, it's really very clear and very specific. And then the second term is arsenokoitai. It's a compound word. Arsen means male, as in not female. And koites means uh, it's the verb to lie down or to bed. And so this is a man who lies down with a man. And it comes. this is coming right from the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, from Leviticus. He's taking those two terms and he's put them together and he's kind of made one term out of it. And so those two terms, he's saying, this is an umbrella term and includes all of that activity, the passive and the active. It couldn't be more clear. That's one that does not get to inherit the kingdom of God, okay? But then he goes on. There's more. And these are hard. The sexually immoral. Pornoi. I mean, that's the Greek word. You can understand that etymology. Idolaters. Someone who substitutes something or someone else into God's rightful place. Adulterers. Thieves. Greedy. Drunkards. Revilers. Swindlers. This is just a representative list. Paul elsewhere goes on and on. And he caps this all off in Romans 3. He says, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of this. There's not a single person who's righteous. There's not a single person who's exempted from this. There's not a single person who on their own merits could be allowed to get into the kingdom of God. Not one. Much attention gets put on the one. But look at that in the context of all of them. That means every one of us outside of Christ would be in the same state. But then look at this amazing, amazing, amazing sentence in verse 11. And such were some of you. Amen. And such were some of you. Think about it. A church full of people who had a checkered past. A church full of people who represented something on that list. But who are now part of the church. A church full of people who have skeletons in their closet. A church full of people who at one time were excluded from the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, such were some of you. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I could just imagine the Corinthian church reading this and going, yep, that that totally is me. I totally fess up to that. I totally agree. But thanks be to God in Christ. We are all guilty and we all can be cleansed. Look at this. He continues. But you, verse 11 were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. No one is outside of God's ability to save. His arm is not short. God, Jesus died so that sinners, 
homosexual, heterosexual, of sinners of all kinds and all stripes could be saved. Being a sinner blocks your entrance into the kingdom of God, no matter what form that sin takes. And those sins, they, they could be anything. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, you could go through the scriptures and find out which one. So here's the, we need to remember, this is gospel right there. That in Jesus Christ, you can be cleansed, justified, and sanctified. Washed. So remember the gospel. God created all of us in God's image to reflect Him, to glorify Him. But we've all rebelled against Him in some way. We've taken the pattern of God and then man and then creation and we've said, God, get out of the picture. I want to take creation and fashion it into an image that I could worship. And we still do it, all of us. It's prevalent in our world today. Idolatry. You may not have a little statue in your room, in your house, or your neighbors might, or your friends might, but, but we all do it. We all substitute something else into God's place. And that's, we incur the wrath for that. But God, Christ comes as a perfect man to perfectly live in the ways in which we couldn't and, and haven't, and we're tempted in every way but without sin, and that he goes to the cross in our place for our sin, for all, for his enemies, and for those who hated him. He did that. And so here's the call. Confess. Confess that what God says is right is right. And confess that what God says is wrong. Confess that what God says about you is an honest, accurate, and uh, genuine assessment. And turn away from that sin and turn to the only one who can forgive. And to all who don't, to, who, to those who don't, he allows them con- to continue to go in their disastrous way. But to all who genuinely do, he welcomes them into his children. And he washes them and he makes them clean. And he says, you're my child. You're part of my people. And we will get to dwell together in my kingdom forever. That's the gospel. Every- so for all of us, we could go down this list and we could say, if you've committed that sin, do not be deceived. Fill in the blank. You will not enter the kingdom of God, but if you repent, you turn to Christ, he will forgive, he will cleanse, he will heal, he will renew, and he will declare you righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross. And he will cleanse you and welcome you into his kingdom and his church. And such were some of you. Go on down. If you're a cheater and a thief, do not be deceived. But if you repent, if you're... If you have an insatiable desire for more, more money, more toys, more perks, more trips, do not be deceived. You will not enter the kingdom of God. If you're a hardcore partier in a quest for entertainment and amusement, do not be deceived. And you go on down the list and get this, people. If you've committed homosexual sin, do not be deceived. But if you repent and turn to Christ, he promises to forgive and to cleanse and to heal and to renew. We have a church full of sinners saved by the grace of God. Christ. This is the gospel. We must know this gospel well. This good message and this good announcement. We have to bring it to a hateful world. To a world that will hate us for it. It's a message that we have and it's a message that we must give. So we must know the gospel. We must learn to love well and learn well to be hated. And we must dissent. With love and compassion and kindness. 
And we could do so with a smile on our face, with no panic or fear, because we know that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he rules and he reigns. The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that Jesus Christ is on the throne. That he is risen from the dead, and he is alive, and he reigns. And as your people, God, remind us of that truth. May we, may we be not discouraged in any way, but with courage and conviction and compassion. Be a people who stand for your sacred gift of marriage and for what it represents, that we stand for the gospel of Christ. God, empower us, fill us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the strength to dissent. Give us the strength to love. Give us the strength to be hated. And give us strength to speak the word that we need to say. Do this for the sake of your Son, our Savior, for your kingdom, and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as we go.